Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and I'm a master's student in philosophy at the University of Houston. You're listening to a reading group episode of the show, which means that in this episode, I discuss two papers in Free Will and Moral Responsibility by Galen Strawson and Dirk Paraboom with two non-philosopher friends, Adam and Giffen, because philosophy shouldn't just be for philosophers. So this is the third episode in the Free Will and Moral Responsibility series, and we talk about uh, two arguments in this episode, Dirk Paraboom's four-case argument and Galen Strawson's basic argument. So the funny thing is that, you know, this episode was recorded uh, around a year ago, as were the other two. <clears throat> and the funny thing is that I've come around to be very interested in compatibilist distinctions generally, but very interested in character coherence, second-order desires, and reasons responsiveness, all three of which I kind of flippantly dismissed in this episode. So I, in this episode, I hinged one of my arguments on this sense of could have done otherwise. Now, this importance of the argument changes after our episode on Frankfurt's Principle of Alternate Possibilities, which will be later in the series. So, this is um, a fun episode, I think. I really enjoyed recording it. And if you disagree with me, well, you're in good company because I disagree with myself from this episode. Uh, so, with that introduction, I hope that you enjoy part three of the series. Just a quick introduction to the episode. Uh, we actually start out talking about this comical, or at least I think comical, um, set of tweets by Brett Weinstein. This episode was actually recorded on March 9th of 2021, so the tweet had to be before that date. And obviously these are not amongst the craziest things that Brett has tweeted, but just so that you know what we're talking about in the intro. Brett tweeted, quote, All else being equal, should we expect more arguments over determinism to take place within a deterministic universe or a stochastic one? He then retweeted his own quote and said, I believe a deterministic universe wouldn't contain arguments of any kind. Arguments over determinism, therefore, require indeterminacy. I expect to lose the argument, though, but not because I'm wrong. So I, upon seeing that tweet, sent it to my co-hosts, and we had a bit of fun discussing that before we get into the more substantial part of the episode, which is a fun discussion of uh, two very influential views by Dirk Paraboom and Galen Strawson. So as always, I hope you enjoy this episode. That picture you sent of Brett Weinstein, it was so dumb. Like, I, I also just like the... Uh the kind of if-then structure to oh it. Oh my god, just a faux logic? Yeah, I believe a deterministic, a deterministic universe wouldn't contain arguments of any kind. So, so he believes that. Okay, he doesn't give any reasons, but he believes it. So I believe a deterministic universe wouldn't contain arguments of any kind. Arguments over determinism, therefore, require indeterminism. <laughs> I expect to lose the argument, though... But not the, <laughs> and, and you notice like these, you know, very intentional. Yet uh, the comma, just like I expect to lose the argument, comma though, comma, but not because I'm wrong. Oh my god! I expect to lose the argument, 
Uh, I like. I think I followed that. Like, I sent you guys the screenshot of that tweet, and I followed it up with like, I actually, I actually used to be a fan of Brett Weinstein's. Like when I when he first came out, it, like he all, I got sucked into the same trap that I did with Jordan Peterson, where like I saw a guy making some pretty reasonable claims about some pretty mundane topics, you know, and I was like, oh, this guy's kind of reasonable, and then just like he. But honestly, more of his brother, Eric, like they both they both have just made me so it's like the problem with those two. But this is more about like Eric, I guess, than Brett, but it applies to him, too, is like they make me like they want people like me to follow them in spite of what they tweet, like not not for it. It's like the only reason I have for following those people is to maintain some aspect of like diversity of information in my diet like that's it or like diversity of viewpoints i shouldn't even say information like yeah yeah i mean like the formula for like you know becoming quote-unquote public intellectual is like like, pretty easy at this point just like you know attack a group that most people hate (laughs) just just to get kind of like a rabid fan base and then at that point you're golden like i mean regardless of what you think about like the ethics of veganism if like if i went out hard against vegans and just like laughed at them and like had a whole channel dedicated to that with my like you know i could you know employ a bunch of faux arguments you know just being like you know they want to take away the cows you know like they don't they don't even respect it and then but actually that's wrong though because i want to be a public intellectual i'd have to kind of like you know uh, gloss up the language a little bit and like they don't recognize, you know, the cultural cultural heritage of meat eating throughout the West for thousands of years. Like I, I can, I can <laughs> yeah. say nonsensical things like that. This is one step away from the 1619 project. You know, like, t- like take away our cows or whatever. It's like references to his past regarding this. <laughs> I that tweet, like I saw that tweet, and honestly, I I. I, I almost had to refresh my Twitter feed because I was like, this loaded wrong. Like, <laughs> like. <laughs> you know what I thought was funny about the tweet? What? Because, um, like, the quote you read was kind of in response to his own tweet from, like, 40 <laughs> minutes ago. And I just imagine him sitting, like, not knowing the answer when he tweeted the first time, sat for 40 minutes thinking, and then that was the response after 40 minutes of deep Well, thinking. it's like, it's like, like, dude, it, it, it. The original tweet's almost reasonable. It's not. I mean, but it's closer to being reasonable. <laughs> but but he said it was it was a it was a st- like a statistical frequency question. It was like all things being equal, should we expect more arguments over determinism to take place within a deterministic universe or a stochastic one? A that I can't imagine the answer that to that shaping my views on anything else. Like, I just can't imagine caring about the answer to that question. I don't know. <clears throat> the problem I have with someone like Brett, and it's it's more brought out in the, the the retweet than the original tweet, is like, just just look at that tweet for a second, though. I believe a deterministic universe wouldn't contain arguments of any kind. Like, just just actually think about that claim for, like, that that... I'm I it's almost so difficult to explain how deeply wrong that is like 
the idea that a determinist I don't even know if this is worth talking about. Like the idea that a deterministic universe would unfold so as the determined creatures in it. Like, like, am I am I crazy in thinking the odds of that are are less than improbable? <laughs> like, like they're damn near impossible. Yeah, and what's like the uh, like the converse he's arguing for here? That like <laughs> indeterministic universes would somehow just bring about arguments. Like, well, why couldn't you just? Why couldn't I just retweet that and say, I believe in an indeterministic universe. There would be no arguments over determinism. Like, what's the problem with just doing that? Like, like it's nothing. It, like, literally, not like it has just as much basis as his tweet. I, I, I'm a fan of the last sentence. I expect to lose the argument, though, but not because I'm wrong. Doesn't mean you can apply oh to any context, God. and it's just hilarious. Oh, you can, you can put that sentence at the end of any other sentence. <laughs> I know it's great. That's the. That's the, probably the best sentence I've ever read, honestly, in its utility. The thing, the thing that kind of pisses me off, it, like genuinely, is these guys do such a bad job of representing any debate. Be, because it's like, I mean, look at what we're about to do. Like, we're about to just discuss like two kind of groundwork papers from two really smart philosophers like we can agree we can disagree but there's no place in which to stand where we can accuse either of them of being like uninformed or or quixotic about the debate or like like we just can't do that but brett thinks that like apparently this is worth tweeting about like in whatever it is 240 characters he he thinks he might actually add something to to the debate of determinism yeah, no, like, I, I, I think, I think that, that puts it pretty well, too. I mean, like, I don't, I don't know how long Strawson or Paraboom spent, you know, formulating their arguments. It was probably over a long, long period of decades. time. Yeah, I, you know, after, you know, decades of reading others' arguments on the very subject, like, and this guy just, like, within 40 minutes, I've got it, i figured it out. Like, <laughs> like, uh, it's just, and, and, like, imagine, imagine taking into consideration a tweet from a like a canceled biologist who had never heard like no one no one had ever heard about him until like a bunch of like unhinged students at evergreen like you know made him famous put yourself in the frame of mind who's who's someone who has a view about determinism and that view is shifted based on this tweet like i just i can't i can't imagine that be pretty funny to encounter this view in the wild though <laughs> someone like you like debating this topic and someone's like well I, I believe that arguments could never take place in a deterministic universe you're like why <laughs> 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 just ask this simple follow-up and you've already stopped just given no reasons to like you know but ima- imagine our, like we are in a deterministic universe or I'm sorry, in, in, we are in a stochastic or indeterminate universe. Why? Because arguments couldn't take place if it were determined. <laughs> what? I, I you have to have what? a weird like definition of argument for this to even be coherent to me. But you, you act, I mean that like actually though. <laughs> like I'm not joking. Like I don't even know if this makes any sense unless you like <sighs> completely redefine argument. This just, it, this honestly just makes me so, this brings out my inner nihilist more than anything else. Like, just burn it all down. If this is what we're going to do, if this is what we're going to do with the internet, like, just burn it down. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, it just makes me depressed to see shit like that. Yeah, it was a pretty bad tweet. I, I wouldn't be, um, 
embarrassed to defend anything that I said there. Yeah. <laughs> like two, Brett. Like if you like, like what are you doing? <laughs> Moratorium on that tweet. I'm cl- I'm closing the window so I don't accidentally catch it out of the corner of my eye <laughs> or discuss just better things. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. All right. <clears throat> so we're continuing the free will series. We we left off a- after the kind of clarificatory part two to the part one and where we're at at this point is just this so all of us deny any form of libertarian free will adam you i remember were were finding it very important to maintain certain types of distinctions in the maybe something like character or even characteristics of persons and that was something that you wanted to preserve. I agreed with you, and I was expecting you to find those distinctions more interesting for something like the moral responsibility debate rather than the free will debate. Am I summarizing that correctly? Maybe, because I certainly was there, but I'm, I feel like I've conceded everything at this point. Like, I, I'm, I've, I've, thrown out, I've thrown out any sort of, like, sense of uh, okay. capitalism at this point. It's gone. It's gone. Okay. Now, yeah. compatibilism. So th- that's a perfect point to pick up on because I've, I've been kind of actually thinking about this more with respect to other projects, but it's relevant to this too. I, I don't know if you guys are as amenable to this as, as I am, but, but it seems to me like in a lot of the literature that we read, there's a bit of a conflation between compatibilism about whether I know I said this before, but it, I don't know if you guys like fully agree or not. It seems like there's a conflation in a lot of this literature between compatibilism between determinism and free will, or a compatibilism between determinism and moral responsibility. Like I, I think that those are two separate questions, and they almost seem to be dealt with v- as one. Well, I, I think though, to be fair though, I um. When we were reading, when I was like reading through like the Paraboom summary here, okay, Boom's four case argument against compatibilism, mm-hmm. um, I felt like I was arguing for the moral reasons sensitivity account. Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah. I was so, so I it, it's it's not. I think it's less of a conflation. Can I read that real fast here? Yeah. Well, should, should I say? So we're gonna we're gonna be talking about um, <clears throat> the impossibility of moral responsibility. That's an essay by Galen Strawson. And then on Philosophical Disquisitions, it's a blog. We're going to read a summary of Paraboom's four-case argument against compatibilism. So I feel like I was arguing for this point that, so it's called Moral Reasons Sensitivity Account. Mm. A decision can be said to be free if it is produced by a decision-making mechanism that is capable of grasping and making use of moral reasons for action. And this is the account associated with... uh, R.J. Wallace. It is similar mm-hmm. to Fisher, and uh, I'm not going to pronounce that his account, but but it pays. You know what's crazy? Yeah, I was telling you guys that I had this moment. I've I've actually emailed R.J. Wallace as well, and never put that together that that was the same Wallace from this. I've oh. al- I've also John Martin Fisher. I've emailed. I think he might he might have tentatively said he he could come on in the summer. Um, How about Visa? Revisa, I have not interviewed. Um, he's actually like a, um, from what I understand, a devout Catholic and views this from a bit of a religious sense. Wow. It, it could be interesting. Um, 
given now I should say I actually don't know much at all about Ravisa's work, but I haven't emailed him yet. I I intend to though. Hmm. So Adam, I actually agree. I I do think that that's what you were kind of going for. I want to start with this paper, uh, but let's let's. Um, can I read a quick thing from like the the above section? Sure. Um, so this is the blog person talking. Um, <clears throat> he says, compatibilists hold that whether a decision is to be judged free or not does not depend on whether the decision was causally determined. This raises the obvious question. If causal determinism has no bearing on the matter, what does? The answer is that a certain type of causal sequence is associated with free and responsible decision-making. If the actual... causal sequence leading up to a decision fits this type, then we are entitled to say the decision is free. Now, I think the and in the previous sentence, he says um, a certain type of causal sequence is associated with free and responsible decision making. I'm not sure that that and is specific enough for me because I, 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 I believe so. I mean, we'll get into it, but he gives four different like uh, accounts of ways to preserve this freedom. I I don't see any of these as preserving a sense of freedom or free will, but I do see all of these as relevant to the moral responsibility debate. Because to my ear, what that sentence says is certain types of determined actions are free and others are not this this maybe this has a little bit to do with the other paper we'll get to the impossibility of moral responsibility but i wish i wish that these instead of saying free said something like constitutive of of moral responsibility or like deserving of moral responsibility as opposed to free do you get what i'm saying does that is that like at least a coherent thought i agree jordan like i if you're trying to make claims in this realm you should say you should not use the word free if you're not talking about free will. You know? But the thing is, I, I think you could be. But the, but like that's like you like I think that's what I mean, that's what a compatibilist on free will is, is like someone who believes that these constitute obviously not indeterminacy. But then like we talked about in the previous episodes, they're almost kind of redefining free will to mean X, whether it's the character or second order reasons responsive or moral reason sensitivity account. I would almost rather preserve like a very clean sense of if it's not libertarian free will, uh, then then sure, we can argue that these things could be like compatibilist notions of free will. But I, I'd rather say that like, OK, there's no libertarian free will. It, like we're, we're just working with determinism here. Let's not worry about whether something is free will or not. That's almost like a semantic game. Let Let's let's work on determining if if certain accounts of of how people are is something that should be deserving of moral responsibility i yeah i I actually really get where you're coming from what you said made a lot of sense because a compatibilist and correct me if i'm wrong but what you're saying is that a compatibilist is trying to reconcile libertarian free will with the fact of determinism Therefore, and we all kind of agree that libertarian free will is kind of a load of bunk. So it's like, let's actually work entirely within the domain of determinism and not even focus on the free will, considering we all kind of reject that part outright. 
Because like close. Okay. One one clarification. Compatibilists about free will aren't trying to preserve libertarianism or any sense of that. They're trying to They're, reconcile the two, though, right? It depends what you mean by reconcile. They're trying to locate a notion of free will within a deterministic framework, as opposed to being an incompatibilist and just saying, like, no, no, we don't have any sense of free will. But that doesn't mean we can't then talk about, like, moral responsibility. Okay, well, at the very least, they're preserving the language of free will. Yes, which which I'm claiming is kind of, I don't know if I see the point of that. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know, like, what, because because to me, and, like, I could be missing something super obvious in the literature here, but, but like, to my ear, whether or not, like, like, let's say we actually hash it out for two hours or whatever, and we come down to a conception of free, free will that can be preserved while admitting that determinism plus randomness is true. And we, and we come down to like maybe one of these four accounts, right? And we think that's what free will is. Okay, but then it's we haven't even opened the, the discussion. All we've settled on is what we want to call free will. Like we haven't settled on the discussion of moral responsibility at all you know yeah i don't know i mean i'll have to do some research but like i don't know if there's actually a kind of like a rich literature on that that we are missing or not i have not come across any paper that really lays it out in those terms let's just try to be specific i i still think all of these arguments are like worth talking about but maybe even like we can be specific between each other what we mean because because so there's like a character based account there there are these four compatibilist alternatives um to preserving some sense of freedom and um and there's a so there's a character based account which says a decision can be said to be free if it is caused by and not out of character for a particular agent that's you know pretty pretty simple like they said it was espoused by david hume initially then there's a more specific idea. There's a second order desire account. Uh, and this says a desire can be free if it is caused by a first order desire. For example, I want some chocolate that is reflexively endorsed by a second order desire. I want to want some chocolate. This is the account associated with Frankfurt. And I actually said that we're going to read this paper. But that's a slightly more sophisticated account. I, I think these get kind of more sophisticated maybe as you go down. Um, then there's the reasons responsive account, which we had discussed last episode, that a decision can be said to be free if it is caused by a decision-making mechanism that is sufficiently responsive to reasons. In other words, if the mechanism had been presented with a different set of reasons for action, it would have produced a different decision, at least in some worlds. And then there's the moral reasons sensitivity account, which says a decision can be said to be free if it is produced by a decision-making mechanism that is capable of grasping and making use of moral reasons for action. And we talked about the people who that's associated to. It pays um, particular attention to the role of moral reasons in decision-making, as so it's even more specific to the reasons responsive account. Now, I want to hear what you guys think about this. When I read all of these accounts... Like we said, you know, basically these are all saying, but with different details, if this is your conception of free will and any given action or thought falls into that category, uh, then it can be called free will, which again is like, it's not, I don't know if that's actually the heart of the issue. Now, 
if you change one word in that claim, it does actually become very interesting. So if if any of these is your conception of of it an action or a character, a characteristic of a person or a constitution of a person that is meaningful to you, then if they fall into that category, that might be what determines if that person is deserving of moral responsibility or not. Like that, that I find all of these accounts much more interesting if we're talking about moral responsibility. And to be fair to anyone who's like um, a proponent of these accounts, it could follow, I suppose, that freedom in this sense is just what is linked to moral responsibility right like i i guess that could be a way of viewing these too right where you say like these constitute a certain type of freedom and if that certain type of freedom is met that warrants moral responsibility it's just kind of adding an an indirect step in between you know yeah, that's what how i was viewing it but okay when i'm i'm not i'm not convinced of free will as we've defined free will and not the redefining of free will and therefore i'm ultimately not convinced of any real moral responsibility so okay wait so say that again so i said that i in the sense that we've defined free will mm-hmm. as liber as like the, the pristine case would be libertarian free will sure okay i do not hold to that at all and i also think that moral responsibility is thrown out with that as well Oh, so, okay, so th- so you'd be an incompatibilist about the possibility of moral responsibility in a deterministic universe. Yeah, at this point, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Before we get into it, just as a teaser, was the Strassen paper persuasive in that view at all to you? Oh, 100%. Okay, interesting, interesting. I That, that actually almost surprises me. Uh, now I'm, I'm very interested to get to that because I had marked out where i thought you might demur but now i'm curious to see why you didn't but we'll we'll get to that paper after this one now paraboom challenges interestingly he kind of actually tackles all of these claims with the same style of argumentation it, it's a species of argument that starts with the simple supposition that if a decision by one agent a has been manipulated into existence by another agent b there is no way that we can say that this decision was freely made by A. Now, he has, like, the, the blog nicely lays out the, the, the formal structure of Paraboom's argument here. The, this is his formal argument against compatibilism. Uh, premise one, if one agent's decision is manipulated by another agent, then that first agent's action is not freely willed. Two, Now, also stop me if you guys object to any of these. Two, there is no difference between manipulation by another agent and causation by a causal factor external to the agent. Premise three, on determinism's account, all of an agent's actions are determined, which is to say causally influenced, by at least some factors beyond that agent's control. Therefore, premise four, on determinism, no agent can can be said to freely will their actions, or, more, or be morally responsible for them, from one, two, and three. Premise five, compatibilism holds that free will and moral responsibility are compatible with determinism, therefore compatibilism must be false. I find that to be syllogistically pleasing. Do both of you? Yep. Okay. Yep. Now, the, the one that is, I believe, most commonly objected to is 
that the premise uh, f- two and premise four, those are the ones in the literature that are most commonly objected to, that there's no difference between manipulation by another agent and causation by a causal factor external to that agent, and also that what actually matters is determinism or not. Those are the two most kind of uh, objected to. <clears throat> now, he, he has this four-case argument, which I find it's a, it's a fun argument to go through. Agreed. So, so he says, he lays out these four cases, and, and he starts with the, what is supposed to be intuitively the most obvious, where there should be no moral responsibility, <clears throat> where a neuroscientist uh, directly manipulates the deliberation process of a person, Professor Plum, and he is forced for, through this manipulation to engage in strong, egoistic deliberation processes, and he decides to, for his own gain, kill this person named White. Now, it's also important to understand that Plum would not have killed White had the neuroscientist not intervened, since his reasoning would not have been sufficiently egoistic to produce this decision. Now, this was supposed to be the pristine case of, obviously, Professor Plum is not morally responsible in this. And I assume, well, I know that Adam finds that intuitive. Giffen, you agree, I'm assuming? (laughs) I do. (laughs) Okay. I, I do fail. I, I'm honestly kind of at a loss to coming up with a reason how he could be there. You know, I mean, like, well, I, I'm not actually, I, I, I know, um, uh, of, of a philosopher who might say he's, he's, uh, still responsible there, but yeah, I, I don't just, if I may, um, the one thing that kind of caught me, it just instinctively, whenever I was reading through Mm-hmm. I kind of got like caught on it really quick. It's like the last sentence where it says, otherwise Plum's decision meets the requirements set down by standard compatible with the counts of free will. And it said, it is consistent with his character, reflexively endorsed by second order desires, produced by a mechanism that is sensitive to reason, moral and prudential. I guess whenever I read through that, I'm like, I had to like do a double like take kind of almost. And I was like, wait, does that in this case? Did you guys get like, like have that reaction? That's a fair question. I I think now we have to remember this isn't Paraboom's writing. This is kind of a summary of it. So I don't know what the original text would say. I'm assuming that that means that basically, uh, from what I understand, the neuroscientist, if that's what you're hanging your hat on, any of those things, one could just have the neuroscientist change those as well. Do you know what I mean? And then it would be consistent with whatever those were. Okay. I think that makes sense, and that's where I like. I think that's what I like. Kind of came around to, like sure. you know, you, yeah. the neuroscientist says, "Well, like, well, now you have that second order desire, <laughs> mm-hmm. right?" Mm-hmm. Okay, I just wanted to um, bring that, that up because I did get caught on that, like, sentence. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good clarification, and I I do think that it's a little. It bears, you know, I'm curious what the actual writing of Paraboom makes about that point, but yeah, that's I, I, I that would have to assume for yeah. the rest of the cases too, just to clear mm-hmm. that up now. Mm-hmm. Then, then we move to, um, so then there's the second case. So Plum is, you know, the same person. He's just this ordinary human being, except that a team of neuroscientists manipulates Plum's deliberative faculties at birth. And so there's this introduction basically of a delta T, like a, a span of time between the manipulation and the manifestation of that manipulation. So much later in Plum's life, he for egoistic reasons, for self-serving reasons, 
uh, due to that earlier manipulation, decides to kill White for his own gain. And it, it's importantly the same that if this manipulation had not taken place, he would not have done what he did. And so this is supposed to be very a very intuitive kind of uh, furthering of the case where it's like, how how on earth are we supposed to locate moral responsibility in just a mere differential in time? Like, how could that, yeah. you know? The, the team of neuroscientists determined that this would happen, and it just just didn't happen, like, later, you know? It didn't matter until, if it was, like, half a second or, like, half a year or half a lifetime. Exactly, exactly. Now, there's a slightly bigger jump into the third case, which is that cultural peers manipulate Plum's deliberative faculties by non-technological means in Plum's childhood. And then, much later, for his own self-serving reasons, he kills Professor White. We're supposed to, to accept that due to the aspect of his character produced by this training, uh, that is what caused him to, to do this uh, uh, and have the first and second order desires to kill White in this scenario. And this is, this is supposed to be, okay, well, all we're doing here is we're swapping a clear agent manipulating white for kind of more diffuse cultural reasons. Or, um, as we'll see in the fourth case, now, now I should say real quick, uh, I think I, I said this before, but <clears throat> a lot of where philosophers object is on that step. From two uh, to three. From two to three. Wow. Also, well, I shouldn't say a lot. I don't know what proportion, actually, but I'm aware of some philosophers who do actually care that it be an agent doing the manipulating. Right. Now, I don't find that convincing because you can always ask the same questions of that agent. Like, wh where did those first and second order desires come from? And I, I find that to be a question that always basically unravels into the fourth case. Right. And... I was also anticipating when I read this that like someone might get caught up on that as like be for the agent reason. So I kind of like imagined to myself almost a smoothing of like this case curve by adding like a, a 3.5 or like a 2.5 <laughs> where instead of like, you know, cultural peer seems like really diffuse, right? It's like, well, you just kind of grow up. But I, I always, I think it might be interesting to add like if you are get, like, kind of getting caught even just like emotionally to imagine that instead of just like kind of vague cultural pressures you grow up in like a cult right that's very mm -hmm. strong i think reaction you could get i don't yeah. know if that um influences any of the audience but i thought that would make this curve a little bit smoother yeah it's if good you think like a, a yeah. true cultish like life that you grew up in is like you know allows you to have moral responsibility like but i feel like people like will find that less believable than just like kind of vague notion of culture even yeah. though to me yeah. it's like the same I, I feel like we could come up with almost I, I feel like there are almost like a hundred or more distinctions in between all of these cases that we could come up with. Yeah. And I and I, I have the suspicion because, you know, obviously it wouldn't be as good a paper if we had to go through a hundred, <laughs> you know, like or four hundred yeah. cases. But right. like my suspicion is that people who want to because I uh, well, pe people who want to um to cut off the slide at some point you know like oh, okay hey case jumping from case two to three or three to four is illegitimate you know right. i i have the suspicion that they would have a harder time figuring out which case when you make it more fine-grained to 
to object at. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's what kind of I thought the jump from two to three was like kind of where I can't imagine people at case one and two like actually like having like mm -hmm. huge qualms. So that jump to three is like where I <clears> like <throat> thought, you know, you can imagine like this being a little bit of a stronger, you know, more of a 2.5 to mm -hmm. like help those people who were like jarred by the jump. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. You can like kind of bring it into like almost just a continuous spectrum and then people just kind of get lost. Don't 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 people kind of have to like deny the like like I dare I say it the fact that <laughs> people are shaped by their environment and their peer group like I mean you are who you surround yourself with and or who just happens to surround you I mean like mm. it's just like a causal chain of like the friends you make inevitably influence you like the household you grow up in like the neighborhood you grow up on you grew up on the community you grow up in like. The country, like everything like wouldn't you have to deny that like how could so, you deny that so libertarians are forced to deny that i believe or not not to deny it but at least to say that's all true but there is some kind of contra causal ghost in the machine you know do do ses machina or whatever it is you know that can overpower all of those factors I find that obviously implausible because for reasons we talked about the last two episodes compatibilists would say all of that's true, but that's not what matters for free for well either free will or moral responsibility. You know, we want to locate what matters for it somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I just don't see that perspective on how you could deny. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I guess you. So so we just went through, we we just went through four examples of how to deny that, where you could say that like so let's say that you know obviously your character was shaped by all of those factors you just said right we could say that any given decision is free if it's not out of character for you to do <laughs> I, I, you're smirking and it's like it's a fair smirk <laughs> um i'm not defending this i'm just trying to explain it yeah um so like you know we could say like you're a very frugal guy you know you like to save money and for some like you know inscrutable reason you bought like a gucci purse or something for your wife and it's like what like that is very out of character for you but but it would be I, I just i mean i agree it sounds kind of a little bit odd on its face like but that's not free like yeah i'm also imagining bringing this down to like just infants and toddlers at that point you know it's mm. like this toddler like drops a glass of milk it's like that's very unlike him. <laughs> he never, he so never like, usually does. Yeah. I mean, like, you, I'm, I'm sure you guys have, like, seen this phenomenon or at least heard about it that, like, you know, children who are molested at a young age will then go on to molest themselves. Yeah. So, like, examining them as, like, as adults, like, it's in their character to want to molest kids. So, therefore, it, they're, you know, they have the freedom or they have free will because they're acting within character. And they want to molest the kids. And it, what, what, the more absurd claim is that if they chose not to, it wouldn't be free because it's out of their character to do so. You know what I mean? Like that. That's. I actually don't know how you could deny case three here. Yeah, that devolves into a weird semantic argument about what character is at that point, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, the interactions you have with people throughout your entire life shape who you are, of course. Yeah. And then I, I find this to be less of a jump from case three to case four. Case four is basically exactly the same, but but substituted cultural societal pressures for generic external causal factors. So all of the aspects of determinism plus randomness, genes, environment, etc., 
sun radiation. Those determine Plum's deliberative processes, and due to those, he engages in this strong egoistic deliberation process and kills White for his own reasons. Yeah, so the interesting thing is that as this blog post kind of goes on to say, there's two ways of resisting this argument. There's the um, rather hard-lined way, which is to say that Plum is responsible in all four cases, which I, 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 I don't know really how you do that. Then there's kind of a softer line way of resisting this, which is to say that either free will or moral responsibility arises in there's there's some kind of you know delineation between these cases. And actually, someone who I had on the on the podcast uh, says that Ben Burgess, he maintains that there is somewhere in the spectrum where either free will or moral responsibility can arise. And I remember, you know, he we were talking about it, and he kept saying that, you know, just just because because I I was asking him, you know, like where how, how do you have a structured principle for where you draw the line in this in this you know argumentation. And, you know, he, he said that just because there is a gray area doesn't mean that it's impossible to say that the ends of the spectrum are different. And he made the analogy, I'm curious what you guys think of this. He made the analogy, it's rather apropos, I guess, in this case, that if, if you know, you can look at this as baldness, for instance. So if, if like, so Adam is obviously not bald <laughs> and so so on one end of the spectrum is someone who's clearly has a full head of hair on the other end of the spectrum is someone let's not take me because like i shave my head so it's a weird like <laughs> edge case but like someone whose head does not naturally have a single hair on it you know mm-hmm. he he says that you know there's gray area of like when we call someone bald or not like is it is it at one hair are you not bald is it at 10 is it a certain kind of pattern and he, he says that, well, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, it's up to interpretation. Where's the, like, the delineation between bald or not? And he argues that because there's gray area doesn't mean that there's not clearly a distinction between bald or have a full head of hair. And it, it's analogous to the moral responsibility. What, what do you guys think of that? You're not convinced? <laughs> I, I don't like that analogy at all. <laughs> yeah, Because, <laughs> like, all that means to me is that, like, you just didn't discuss what bald means. Like, what do you define bald? Giffen, you're you're making a a great point that I think circles back to what I said before. It almost, what matters to me doesn't really matter if you call bald having one hair, ten hairs, a certain pattern. What you call bald doesn't really matter. What almost matters to me is how many hairs do you have? Right, yes, exactly. Which is I, no, I'm called sure one bald analogy. and call the other bold for all I care, right? <laughs> like, well, so the the, the analogy the there is between the the argument over like compatibilists' free will or like no 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 like let's move to the more responsibility case like how many hairs on your head do you have you know, um, like that's the where I think the interesting question is. But okay, let's let's move to the to the impossibility of more responsibility paper because um, I'm I'm curious. I have questions for Adam maybe specifically about this, because I thought he was going to object in certain areas. Now, it's official. We have fully clarified that we're moving on from from free will to just straight-up moral responsibility. So this is the heart of the issue here. This is what really matters. And 
basically the way I'm I'm setting up the rest of the series is I think this this paper excellently brings up um, the potential impossibility of moral responsibility and subsequent papers will read are, are possible ways of resisting that conclusion. So this is Galen Strassen, who <laughs> it's actually really funny. Galen Strassen is um, still like, uh, he's not that old and teaching today. I think he's older, but not like super old. And um, he's at U of T Austin, I think, uh, which is another program I'm interested in. It's funny because he is a hard incompatibilist on this question. And his father, P.F. Strassen, wrote one of the most like uh, kind of formative papers in this debate. It's called Freedom and Resentment. And it's just funny because his like what the elder Strassen, P.F. Strassen, writes in that paper is like directly against what Galen is doing in this paper. It's it's just a very funny like he family it's, feud. Yeah, it's a very funny kind of father son philosophy feud. So. He, this paper is kind of talking about what what Strassen calls the 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 basic argument. And this is a nice paper too because he just there's no chaff on this. He really just gets right into it. He says in the very beginning, there is an argument which I will call the basic argument, which appears to prove that we cannot be truly or ultimately morally responsible for our actions. Now, this already raises a question: What do we mean by truly or ultimately? Um, it's kind of an open question. We can we can discuss what these terms mean, but I think what's clear, what we can be sure about in this argument is Galen Strassen, he's not holding out for something better. Like if if he could believe in any form of moral responsibility, it's going to be corrupted by this argument. You know, um, like there's not some higher thing that he's he's looking for. According to the basic argument, it makes no difference whether determinism is true or false. We cannot be truly or ultimately morally responsible for our actions in either case. He says, the basic argument has variations expressed in the literature of free will, and its central idea can be quickly conveyed. <laughs> Very quickly conveyed. It has two premises and a conclusion. One, nothing can be causa sui, which is to say that nothing can be the cause of itself. Premise two, in order to be truly morally responsible for one's actions, one would have to be causa sui, at least in certain crucial mental respects. <laughs> Therefore, nothing can be truly morally responsible. It's a very nice, neat, simple argument that he unpacks a little bit moving forward. Now, libertarians would object to premise one. Compatibilists would object to premise two. P.F. Strassen, his father, would object to premise two he lays it out and i think it's a it's a better form it's a better form here in in the next section um well, not the next section but just the next paragraph he says essentially the same argument can be given in a more natural form one it is undeniable that one is the way one is initially as a result of heredity and early experience and it is undeniable that these things that these are things for which one cannot be held to be morally responsible for now, that's obvious. Premise two, one cannot at any later stage of life hope to accede to true moral responsibility for the way one is by trying to change the way one already is as a result of heredity and previous experience. Basically saying you can't overcome your constitution. Like that doesn't even make any sense. Like that would, you'd have to believe in like some ghost in the machine to be able to like through the power of sheer will, like override yeah. these things. Like the ghost only wakes up after a few years or something. 
Yeah, it's or it's like it's like. <laughs> I, I mean, this is like like if you if you believe that, it's like you almost have to be saying kind of impossible things. It's like, for instance, if someone was born with, um, you know, like no legs, like just choose to walk, <laughs> like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, son, and, and like that's a caricature example. But then you look yeah. at it again. It's like, well, okay, well, then they're born with Down syndrome, and it's like. Can you just choose to be like an astrophysicist at that point? Like, not, no, you can't. And like, that's a hard truth to swallow. But then we move to like, okay, what if you were born with like an 87 IQ? It's like, can you just choose to be like smart enough to be an astrophysicist? No. Like, you know what I mean? So it's just, it, you can do the same thing that Paraboom does with any of those cases. You start with obviously, if you're not born with legs, you can't choose to walk and move it to anything else. Um, so, Premise three, for both the particular way in which one is moved to try to change oneself and the degree of one's success in one's attempt at change will be determined by how one already is as a result of hereditary and previous experience. I love yeah. that one. That one's, that one's my, one of my favorites because it's so crucial to lay that out. Like, this is what a lot of people don't get, I think, when you initially first talk to them about free will. It's like, even your... The, the, like whether you're successful in the change, that's even out of your control. You know what I mean? It's like, even if you want to change, like, you know, you're just, you're overweight and you want to lose weight. Well, like whether you do or not, it's not even up to you. You know what I mean? It's like, like, cause if it was, you'd do it. You'd never fail at anything. <laughs> like if it was just up to you. Yeah, like, I want to do this. I want to want to do this. It is done. <laughs> <laughs> it is done. <laughs> like, that honestly is, like, the only, yeah, like, absurd yeah. example. It's, like, where you're just, like, a god figure. Yeah, it is. It is done. It, it, it's hard to conceive of how you could fail at anything then, you know? Like, if you right. don't buy that premise. Okay, so, and four. Any further changes that one can, in fact, bring about only after one has brought about certain initial changes will be in turn determined via the initial changes by heredity and previous experience. You can always walk it back. Th five, this may not be the whole story, for it may be that some changes in the way one is traceable not to hereditary, not to heredity and experience, but to the influence of indeterministic or random causes. But it is absurd to suppose that indeterministic or random causes for one is for which one is X hypothesis in no way responsible can in themselves contribute in any way to one's being truly more morally responsible for how one is, which is just to say randomness doesn't get you freedom or responsibility either. The claim then is that people cannot change the way they are. This to me this line of argumentation corrupts what I think is the crux of it. The sense of could have done otherwise. Like there's, there's no sense. If you buy all of those premises, there's no sense in which anyone could have done other than they did. Or that if they did, it's due to randomness, which doesn't give you anything that you can hang your hat on either. Now, not being able to do otherwise for me looks like being compelled or compulsion, right? Like you're helpless but to do the thing you do. Now, I take it that neither of you have any objections to those argumentations, right? Uh, not the argumentation. I, I did think it sounded a little weird to my ears when you said compulsion, but that might just be, you know, more of a semantic issue there. 
Okay. Oh. Yeah, so I should say, so when I say compulsion, I'm broadening the definition from Paraboom's first case to include everything up until his fourth case. Okay, so including like uh, genetics and everything. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. basically saying you're compelled instead of by a team of neuroscientists, by you're... your genetics or by whatever, you know. Fine, yeah, yeah that's yeah. fine. Hmm. Okay, can you repeat your question, Jordan? <laughs> now that you've clarified. Oh, I was just making sure that, that there were no demurrings um, from either of you on that line of argumentation. So he summarized it nicely. He says, the claim is only that people cannot be supposed to change themselves in a way as to become or be, or as to be or truly become ultimately morally responsible for the way that they are and hence for their actions. So he's just obliterating any sense that we have, any hope that we have for moral responsibility. Um, now, th this is funny. He says, you know, he's encountered two main reactions to the basic argument. He says, on one hand, it convinces almost all of the students with whom I have discussed the topic of free will and moral responsibility. On the other hand, it often tends to be dismissed in contemporary discussions of free will and moral responsibility as wrong, which I would take it libertarians would say, or irrelevant, which I know his father, P.F. Strassen, would say. He said, or fatuous or too rapid or an expression of metaphysical megalomania. A compatibilist like his father would say, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not very interesting. It's not central to the moral responsibility debate. Now, I'm just curious. I don't want to give away the punchline of the P.F. Strassen paper because we might do it in the series, but I'm just curious to either of you. Can you conceive, like put, your, put yourself in the mind frame of a compatibilist about moral responsibility here. Like what, if you wanted to, resist his conclusion and preserve some sense of more responsibility what if i forced you to make that argument what would you what would you hang your hat on there in other words how <laughs> it's, it's difficult how would i argue like if how, i were a compatible compatibilist sure sure saying? how if you if you were forced as a let's pretend it's a writing example or something you know if you were a debate forced, a good old debate where i get points for how well i can argue sure if you if you <laughs> hoped to say that all of this is irrelevant to whether we had whether we were deserving of more responsibility or not. What would you say if you had to? It's a very interesting question, Jordan. <laughs> well, perhaps you mentioned it earlier, but like the basic argument case two, in order to be truly morally responsible, you would have to be causa uh, sui. Yep, causa sui. At least in crucial mental aspects. I would probably just... <laughs> If I was forced, um, kind of hang my hat there and just discuss. I mean, it may devolve into semantics, frankly, but I think that's kind of where I would discuss. Tell me how, though. So how? <laughs> that's so difficult, actually. It is. I want to force. I want to force you to just try to be a little. Uh, I'm going to exercise your your argumentation skills a little bit here. I mean, I'm trying to go in the direction of like, you know, kind of. Um, I guess, like, just subverting like the main argument where like the main argument's like referring to like ultimate moral responsibility and i think i don't think anyone can deny that like i may, may maybe you are going for like a denial of that claim but maybe some sense of moral responsibility you, you could you could retain you know just based on like assessing someone like i, I guess you'd have to ignore all the factors that went into making someone who they are and then just assess them based on who they are now 
So, but I don't know. You'll you'll have to give us the punchline here. What is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I didn't. Well, I don't want to give you the punchline of the Strassen essay in case we do it, because it's actually open to debate. Like what that paper is claiming. <laughs> so I don't want to. I don't want to force my interpretation onto you. I don't know. It's kind of hard to debate against like <laughs> the uh, the two line syllogism that we both we're both we both you know all of us agree to both points. Well, like, you, you definitely can't find it invalid because it clearly is. But I'm you might be able to find it unsound. I thought that actually already we got an interesting distinction where Adam, you interestingly honed in on the status of truly or ultimate moral responsibility, whereas Giffen thought it might be easier to. Uh, debate that the status of being Kazusui was what mattered for it, which is an interesting distinction. That's true, but I'm really at a loss for like. Which is fair. Which is <laughs> fair. I I just wanted to I just wanted to kind of force you guys to feel a little uncomfortable for a minute and try to think it through. Success, overwhelming <laughs> success. <laughs> okay, nice. He gives us a bit of a hint. So I'll read, I'll read what Galen says um, later in section two. He says, the only way in which one might hope to show that the basic argument was not central to the free will or moral responsibility debate would be to show that the issue of moral responsibility was not central to the free will debate. Now, that's an interesting one. You could it's 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 similar to what I've been saying. Now, I obviously was not making that objection. The reason why I find this compelling is is actually not even explicitly stated by Galen Strassen here. I find this compelling because it corrupts any sense of could have done otherwise, um, right? Like I, it, it is. Uh, it, I just I don't know how you get around the the claim that. If you could not have done or thought or wanted or had the emotion of whatever happened, I mean, that throws free will out the window, obviously. But then how can you be morally responsible? I mean, like how? If you can't have done or thought or felt otherwise, in what sense are you deeply deserving of blame? I can't come up with one. But I suppose that Galen Strassen himself says that if you want to argue with that, that might be the place to do it. Is that? You've got to give us the bit at this point. We got to hear it with P.O. Strassen. We got to hear no, it. No, 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 no. I refuse to because the problem is, is that if we do that paper, here's the thing: if we decide we don't want to do that paper, yeah, I'll give it to you. But if we decide to do it, such a rich part of reading that paper is trying to decide what he's actually saying. Yeah. Is that is that the only paper you've read that made a made a compelling case for moral responsibility outside of the syllogism that Galen Strassen has provided? In a very damn, it, almost to answer that might be to give away what I think about it. Um, Adam's just trying to do that at that point. <laughs> I'll give you a hint in as non-committal a way as I can. Yes, with a massive asterisk next to it, in that there is an extremely soft sense in which his point is correct, but I do not agree with the paper overall. Okay, so it sounds like it'll be 
I, I don't know. I don't know. It's I, not. It's not. Sounds like some some redefining is going to happen here. No, no, I don't think so at all. Um, well, but, but well, now but, we have to do it. Yes, yes. Um, okay, we'll, def- we'll definitely do it. It's just, it's a, it's a landmark paper in this area, um, so we should do it. Oh, th- this, this, was, this was something that I thought was actually really important to kind of close. I actually think that Galen makes a mistake in section three of this paper, though. He, he says, I, I don't think it's sort of like a, 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 a fatal mistake. I think it's maybe more of a stylistic mistake. So he, he waits until section three to, to talk about what actually he means, like what sort of responsibility is under discussion. He, he says it's important to try to be precise about what sort of responsibility is under discussion, um, what sort of true moral responsibility is being said to be both impossible and widely believed in he says uh, now this is where i think he makes a mistake he says an old story is very helpful in clarifying this question this is the story of heaven and hell as i understand it true moral responsibility is responsibility of such a kind that if we have it then it makes sense at least to suppose that it could be just to punish some of us with eternal torment in hell and reward others with eternal bliss in heaven this is where I think he makes a mistake because I, I think it's all too easy to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a compatibilist. I believe in more responsibility and I don't think anyone should be sent to hell, which is fair. Like, I, I don't think that's an incoherent position to have. I think he didn't need to bring in that story or analogy. I think it's overkill. I think what he should have done is just bring out the sense that what we're doing when we talk about moral responsibility we're not talking about attributability or causality in the sense that like a a rocket's fuel propulsion is responsible for it escaping terminal velocity right or it's or hitting escape velocity that's that's saying like that's almost like a descriptive account that's not that's not what we're talking about when we say moral responsibility what we're what we're talking about here is whether or not someone is deserving of blame and, and i think it's 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 actually kind of crucial to isolate actions from attitudes because that's why i didn't like where he cuz he conflated them a little bit here like sending someone to hell is an action i think that instead he should have focused on the attitudes that we have towards people when we say that they're morally responsible, like, is there a deep sense in which you deserve praise or blame morally for your actions? Well, I, I think it actually brings up a pretty interesting point there. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, I think torment and hell and eternal <laughs> is a bit of a, cause I mean, obviously you can still reject mm-hmm. that if you accept moral responsibility and say it's actually yes. an unjust response. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. But, but I think like the, concept of punishment is an interesting thing to bring up in this in this argument here just like because it's honestly less to do with um i mean it it has to do with our attitudes toward that person but also in a sense that to be morally responsible i feel like that entails that there are moral consequences to one's actions you you could maybe argue that if you think that someone's morally responsible for like maybe you know killing your father that there is 
you know, reason of, you know, reason to think that there should be some sort of punishment to that as well. I'm not sure I like that. Can honestly. I can I explain? There's a distinction in the literature. The problem is, is that you could have consequentialist reasons for punishment that don't hinge on you believing in a deep sense of moral responsibility. No, no, no. That, that, that's that, that's that's the like the probably the inverse of my point there, because okay. obviously that there are like you know societal reasons for for punishing people. You know, even if you don't believe in moral responsibility, I'm saying that if you believe in moral responsibility, then you know maybe a conclusion to that would be that punishment is justifiable. But I think it's maybe there. Like I, I don't. That's why I'm saying I don't think you should. F not you, but Strassen, um, Galen Strassen should focus on this sort of the action side of it or like the punishment side of it. That's, that's a question. It's just that that's an open question. And I think by giving people like the wiggle room to say like, well, I don't believe in like capital punishment or people should be sent to hell. So like the, like the, it, uh, like I said, I think it's a stylistic. Those, those, are, those are specific punishments. I'm talking about, like, punishment generally punishment generally but like, i even think is, that that's that a, a different question is that a coherent concept like say we you know take out a you know consequentialist viewpoint you know we just take that out of the picture and we say that like you know it doesn't actually help society if we punish like there's it doesn't get people off the streets it doesn't deter crime all that's thrown out is there some coherent reason to punish people if you adhere to like moral responsibility i think to be a true advocate of moral responsibility in a deep sense you have to say yes yeah so i think that's an interesting but, thing yeah i'm just saying but i don't like the debate being framed that way because from that perspective the action is a consequent of the attitude Right. So like, I think we should separate because the problem is there's there's I understand it's not what you were saying, but there's any possibility of any given action for any like attitude towards someone. Right. So I, I think that the debate should focus first about like the attitudes that result from what you think about moral responsibility. OK, I, I just well, think it's the logical next step. Well, Jordan, can you clarify your belief a little bit more on, um, yeah. like, attitude? Well, this is, so I'm using the language, actually, of, um, well, I'm, I'm beginning to creep into the language of P.F. Strassen's paper. Um, I see. So he talks about, ah, I'm not going to, The gonna veil say. stays up. <laughs> well, no, I can speak about it without using his terminology, I guess. It's just, I find his terminology actually helpful in, in clarifying this, but, sure. um, my point is that there are philosophers who maintain a distinction between believing in moral responsibility and conceding that punishment generally follows from that. Or yeah, we're, yeah. We're, fo we're, focusing on, we're focusing on the negative side of it, but you can flip it. You can say that if you do like a, a morally uh, up outstanding action, you deserve praise for it. And you can maintain the distinction between praise in the attitudinal sense 
from praise as like an action or something you do as a consequence of it. So I, I just think it's clarifying to focus on the attitudes that result from how you view moral responsibility. I actually am not sure if I understand fully the distinction between attitude and action in this case. Because to me, like at least on first blush, an attitude that is mm -hmm. being taken kind of implies some sort of action. Not necessarily. Like, so for instance, let's say, let's like, say. For, so we're talking about like other people in this case, right? For there to be attitudes towards like the person who is morally responsible for the thing. Mm -hmm. we, we, it's other people's attitudes towards, right? Yeah, you, you could believe that someone, so you could, you could, you could not buy Galen's argument here and say, no, I believe in a deep sense of moral responsibility. But you could also be a consequentialist ethically and say, so you could have the attitude, this person deserves deep blame, but for some consequentialist reason, punishing him for it uh, would result in a worse consequence for the world. Don't make me spell, like, let's just bracket. Okay, bracket. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it could be superseded by that ethical concern. Okay, I, I just, don't understand what you yeah. meant by attitude. I think that clarifies it a bit. Yes. So I'm, I'm saying, let's, let's talk about, cause, cause I think there's like, there's a rich like discussion to be had about like what you do with an attitude, you know, once you have it, but like, but the attitude seems to be a dire direct result from what you think about the more responsibility yeah. case. I was misinterpreting what you meant by attitude because to okay. me, like attitude implied like, you know, the way people like socially treat a person. Like yeah, I'm action. just saying in, intentional attitude I, as a as a as a I direct. I do see what yeah. you're saying now. Okay, okay, that is interesting. To close the loop, I don't want to be pedantic, but like, do you get what I'm saying, Adam? Uh, I I I think I do. I think I do. Okay, okay. I think we may not have heard each other entirely on that one, but I think it's, I I know where you're coming from, though. Okay, it's definitely possible. I I think I understand what you're saying, and I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with it kind of from my personal stance. Like I do agree with what you're saying, but, but from the larger kind of 30,000 view, it's, I don't want to conflate attitude as a result of how you see moral responsibility with action, just because there, there are possibilities. I don't follow them, but there are possibilities of branches there. Sure. And I, and I also get what you were saying that obviously other frameworks that you operate under and buy into can supersede, you know, whether you act on the conclusion of moral responsibility, that punishment is mm. you know, given everything else held off on the side, you know, like consequences and yep. you know, how that all affects society and human behavior. Um, I, I, I do think punishment does follow from moral responsibility. So, yes, yes. Okay, I agree with that. Yeah, I was just saying, I, I find it clarifying to talk in terms of, of the attitudes that result in, instead of the consequences. Sure. Okay, okay, nice. I really enjoyed the Nietzsche quote late, later in the paper on, on page uh, 315. Just indulge me, I want to read the Nietzsche quote because I just think it's good writing. This is Galen introducing it he says the causa sui is the best self-contradiction that has been conceived so far as nietzsche remarked in 1886 
It is a sort of rape and perversion of logic, but the extravagant pride of man has managed to entangle itself profoundly and frightfully with just this nonsense. The desire for freedom of the will in the superlative metaphysical sense, which holds sway, unfortunately, in the minds of the half-educated, the desire to bear the entire and ultimate responsibility for one's actions oneself and to absolve God, the world, ancestors, chance, and society involves nothing less than to be precisely this Kazasui, and with more than Baron Munchausen's audacity, to pull one's up, oneself up by the existence, by the hair, out of the swamps of nothingness. In, quoted from Beyond Good and Evil. Like I just, I just love that quote. Like his disdain. <laughs> it's just, it's absurd. <laughs> it's such a good quote. I love it. Um, <laughs> I love the end. There is just what a great way to end. To pull oneself up into existence by the hair oh, out of the swamps of nothingness. It's I love it. I love it. <laughs> I should clarify for you guys. I actually, I don't disagree with anything in this paper. Any sense, like I said, I don't want to give it away, but in the tiny, tiny, very soft, one could argue not even conforming. Well, I, I could, I like part of my writing sample is critiquing P.F. Strassen's paper. In the only way that I see a value in that is not in the way he intends it. So I am not objecting to, I think, this excellent paper by the younger Galen Strassen. There, I'll just read. There's two tiny quotes that I think he ends it with perfectly. He says, Punishments and rewards may seem deeply appropriate or intrinsically fitting to us in spite of this argument. Now, we can discuss that in... Uh, later readings he's basically alluding to a consequentialist framework here but he says you know to conclude it the evident consequence of the basic argument is that there is a fundamental sense in which no punishment or reward is ever ultimately just it is exactly as just to punish or reward people for their actions as it is to punish or reward them for the natural color of their hair or the natural shape of their faces I think that's not the last line of the paper, but I think that that's the line we should end on. Cause like, I, I, I do like, yes, I, I agree with that. Like, I don't know how, I don't know how you could disagree with that. Honestly, like it really is just as odd or as unjust for me to punish someone for their disposition or a result of their disposition as it is for me to punish them for the color of their hair. Like, in a perverse sense, you can imagine someone saying it's just to do both. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anyone who argues for that. I mean, that's well, in the past, perhaps. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, in the past. I mean, <laughs> that's what I'm alluding to. Oh, sure. I can't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's half-educated crowd there. <laughs> <laughs> It holds. What did he say? He says uh, it still holds sway, unfortunately, in the minds of the half-educated. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. It's it's funny. I mean, like he it, this actually. It's not in Beyond Good and Evil, but it's in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I think um, this actually really ties in with his concept of slave morality. Like he he is almost alluding to that here. Like, don't you get the sense that some people actually want to bear that responsibility for like. So some people like it is this weird kind of slave morality esque desire that like I mean I think it's most common in in Christians for sure right like you you 
I mean, do you agree with that, Adam? Like, it seems like from a Christian point of view, like you do almost kind of want to have the weight of the moral universe on your shoulders in that sense. Yeah, because I mean, so otherwise hell doesn't make any sense. But but then also like a perfect God doesn't make a lot of sense either. And they, need, they and that's more important to maintain that, especially with the get out of free, you know, get out of jail free card. Um, you know, like that you bear all the weight of your your moral failings, but you kind of don't at the same time. So, yeah, yeah. I feel like if we were talking about like, you know, individuals who like want to like hold on to this, it's like, you know, like hold on to like the struggle, like the, the responsibility because like they feel like their own greatness, which is probably exaggerated, like is lessened by, you know, mm. kind of rejecting it, which mm. it kind of is. <laughs> Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like you're not so great. Like you didn't have a choice. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty that's true. A good point. And yeah, and there's a battering it anyways. Go on. Yeah. Well, there's there's a nice question that you I maybe unintentionally brought up there, Giffen. But like a lot of people make a fuss about there being an asymmetry between the positive and negative consequences of disavowing more responsibility, in the sense that clearly. It's never just to blame someone, but people descriptively do tend to hang on to the positive attitudes of more responsibility. Things like, you know, praise or empathy or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just an interesting remark. That is interesting. Um, yeah. So, some people make a big deal of that asymmetry. I find that asymmetry to be a very happy one. Like, let's eschew all of these kind of nonsensical like attributions of blame for things over which people clearly could not have done otherwise but yeah let's keep the the good parts about it like it's like i don't see that as an unhappy one i guess you could make the argument that that's and i'm not saying that we keep it in a deep sense but i'm just saying like because like you could accuse me of being um not consistent i suppose well i mean i think it ties in nicely with you know nagel's moral luck as mm-hmm. well all right. Well, I think I think that we've covered it nicely. We kind of have to do the P.F. Strassen paper after we this. Do. Next, next, yeah. All right. Nice. Well, we'll do it. Uh, I hope this was interesting, maybe enjoyable, and uh, and tune in next time for the Elder Strassen's paper.